0: you according to the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. May the peace of God and the grace of Jesus be with you. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this time of year when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we ask that as we spend time thinking about what that means and what it meant, we ask your Spirit to help us to understand that which is beyond our understanding that your spirit may give us faith to believe in spite of not having all the answers. Guide us in our discussion and our sharing and, and in the words this morning that we might be in awe of the gift of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. We are now continuing our stained glass series window. You remember we covered we covered the fall uh, the creation and the fall and the Ten Commandments and now we are on the stained glass window that is at the very back the one that refers to the birth of Jesus can you think of a better time of year to be talking about that stained glass window I can't the story is told of a Sunday school teacher who wanted to make sure after teaching her Sunday school, probably primary age Sunday school kids, the, uh, the story of the birth of Jesus. She wanted to make sure they got it. And so she asked them all to draw a picture of the birth of Jesus. The kids got busy drawing their pictures, and they, when they got done, they handed it to the teacher, and the teacher was looking through them and making comments about how, what a good job they'd done. And she came to one picture that kind of had her puzzled a little bit. And so she she turned to the, to the student and we'll just, I'm not sure if it was a boy or girl, we'll just call him Johnny. She turned to Johnny and said, Johnny, you did a wonderful job with this picture of, of Jesus' birth. And I see Mary and Joseph by the manger and, the, and, and, and there's the, the shepherds and the wise men. But there, there's one, one figure there, I, I don't know who that is. And Johnny said, well, who's that, teacher? She said, well, it's that rather large man standing behind them. And Johnny said, oh, teacher, you know, it's Round John Virgin. We laugh a little bit at that. And yet, if you stop to think about it, our understanding of the Incarnation our limited understanding of what it meant for God, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, to leave heaven and come to this earth, to dwell within flesh, to live and die, our understanding is probably just as simple and sometimes as misunderstood, standing as was little Johnny's understanding of the story. Keep that thought in mind, will you? The doctrine of the Incarnation was a doctrine that was hammered out by the Roman Catholic Church. It took them three councils to figure it all out. There was the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., the Council of Ephesus in 431, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The word Incarnation is not found in the Bible. It literally means to dwell in, or clothed in flesh. But the birth of Jesus doesn't really describe what it was all about either. And so the, the Christian church for, for centuries now has, has used the term incarnation to refer to that which happened when Jesus left heaven and came to this earth. And while later on some things were, were proposed and taught that, that aren't biblically supported, we cannot accept them. We, we refuse to deny the fact that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was flesh and blood, that he was fully God and fully man, and he came to this earth and became our Savior. It is biblically supported. Let me just kind of give you the uh, a working definition of the Incarnation. It's a long one, but follow with me if you will. The Incarnation of the Son of God is the terminology used to describe what happened when the second person of the Trinity the eternal Son of God became flesh as he was miraculously conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary according to the Bible in the incarnation the divine nature of the Son was perfectly united with the human nature in one person this person Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man a friend of mine has suggested to me sometime that, that I, uh, as I'm preparing my sermons, I might want to think through some of the questions people might ask as, as I give my message. I began to think of some of the questions you might ask, but then when I thought of those questions, I realized I didn't have an answer. And so I'm not asking those questions. Because no one has an answer for how God could leave heaven and become man. Do we? We don't yet this incarnation is an extremely vital and important topic it often happens almost it's an annual thing that an alarm goes off every time christmas time rolls around in the christian church the alarm clock goes off then which we decry how christmas has become commercialized the alarm goes off we Decry referring to Christmas as Xmas, or now we refer to Christmas as holiday greetings or season's greetings. And in reality, we too in the church have made the birth of Christ less than it is because we've accepted all too often a shallow version of what took place we sanitized it with cozy, comfy, comfy pictures. Nice, clean straw. Clean clothes. Smiles all around. One picture even has the light coming up from Christ himself. It's probably not what it looked like. We sing songs like a way in a manger in which the words say that little Lord Jesus no crying he made that's not true we sing songs like Silent Night and while it may have been silent out on the hills for a while at least it was hardly silent in Bethlehem with everybody trying to find a place to stay and while those are wonderful songs and I'm not saying we shouldn't sing them we should and we will when we, what we need to do is to focus on Christ's birth. Because all too often we make it a wonderful thing and we forget that at the time of his birth there were those who rejected him. There were those who wanted him destroyed. There were those who wanted nothing to do with him. And that those who were there to worship him were people who were not wanted by society. They were the lowly shepherds who were looked down upon as crass and crude. They were the wise men who were Gentiles, who should have nothing to do with the Israel's Messiah. How interesting that those who should have been there weren't, and those who weren't wanted were the ones who were there. But above all, we minimize the incarnation when we fail to acknowledge the awesome truth that the birth of Christ is the greatest miracle of God. Do you believe that? The birth of Christ is the greatest miracle of God. So great that we cannot grasp or understand it. I want to share with you three brief quotes about the importance of this message. This mystery... I'm sorry, I had it in the right order. Okay, hit it twice. That God the Creator should himself condescend to become a creature and imprison himself within the matter he created is an event that defeats logical analysis and rational explanation. Translation, we can't understand it. But God in Jesus did become flesh, a complete human being. This is the greatest miracle of all time and eternity. It cannot be fully comprehended. It can only be received in grateful adoration. I love those two last two phrases. Because while I cannot fully comprehend it, I can receive it with grateful adoration. Can't you? G. Campbell Morgan, in his book, The Crises of the Christ, makes this statement. This mystery and revelation, uniting God and man in a person, is the center of Christianity and is without parallel and is without possibility of explanation by analogy. What that literally means is all the pastors and preachers who try to come up with an analogy or an illustration for the incarnation fall far short. But perhaps, and not even perhaps, I think the third quotation about the importance of this doctrine is found in Desire of Ages. In contemplating the incarnation of Christ in humanity, we stand baffled before an unfathomable mystery that the human mind cannot comprehend. The more we reflect upon it, the more amazing does it appear. How wide is the contrast between the divinity of Christ and the helpless infant in Bethlehem's manger? How can we span the distance between the mighty God and the helpless child? And yet, the creator of worlds, he in whom was the fullness of the Godhead bodily, was manifest in the helpless babe in the manger far higher than any of the angels, equal with the Father in dignity and glory, and yet wearing the garb of humanity. Divinity and humanity were mysteriously combined, and man and God became one. It is in this union that we find the hope of our fallen race. It is in this mystery that we find our hope for eternity. The incarnation, God's incredible plan. I want to just refer to, and I just want you to listen to the words again, bits and pieces of the scripture that were read this morning. Because the incarnation is spelled out in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of god he might taste death for every man in bringing many sons to glory it was fitting that god for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering since the children have flesh and blood He, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We're going to look at God's incredible plan in those verses. The first thing we will notice is the essence of the Incarnation, the essence of the Incarnation. We see Jesus, who for a little while was created lower than the angels and who suffered death. Jesus left heaven and the glory of heaven to take on flesh and become a human being. Jesus, the one who created Adam and Eve, became one who was born of a virgin. Jesus, the one whom angels praised and adored in heaven, became one who few people praised or understood or even wanted to. There are probably three other verses that help us understand the Incarnation. John 1, 1 to 14, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Colossians 2, 9 says that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. And Philippians 2, 5 and on says, that we have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or to be held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and suffering death and learning obedience by doing so. The essence of the incarnation is that the second person of the God had left heaven and came to earth to dwell in a human form to live a perfect life that he might die that we might live but after looking at the essence of the incarnation what it was that took place we need to be reminded of the necessity of the incarnation what was it that made God go to such drastic steps in order to save this world It's interesting that chapter 2, verse 10 says in Hebrews that in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, it was fitting that God, in other words, no one else could do what God did. No one else could redeem fallen man. Only God could. No one else could provide a way out. Only God could do that. And you and I still can't provide our way out. Only God has been able to do that. You see this incredible plan was made because of the rebellion of man and the crisis that was possible. If God did not do something to counteract man's rebellion and man's sin, He stood the possibility of the entire universe being lost and destroyed by sin. Because, you see, when God created man, and man began in the perfection of Eden. Genesis tells us that God created man in his image and in his likeness. Remember that? The word image in the Hebrew means a shadow of something that is greater. God created man as a shadow of himself and in his likeness, something which was similar but not matching. You scratch your head and said, What was it? Well, it couldn't be our physical bodies because God is spirit. That which makes a person a person is our three factors. The first factor is intelligence, the second factor are emotions, and the third factor is will. When Adam and Eve sinned, their intelligence became deadened and diminished, especially their intelligence about God and who He is. When Adam and Eve sinned, their emotions became displaced and distorted. When they sinned, their will became degraded and defiant. They became alienated from God and from one another. When they sinned, their intelligence became deadened because they they hid from God as if God couldn't find them. They thought God wouldn't know where they were. When they sinned, their intelligence became diminished. They thought fig leaves sewn together would would cover their nakedness. When they sinned, their, their emotions became displaced and distorted. Adam blamed his wife, the wife blamed the snake, and they both blamed God. What is interesting is I believe God created them with the fruit of the Spirit in their life already there. They knew love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. But the moment they sinned, new emotions came to the front. Paul calls them the work of the flesh. They knew hatred, they knew anxiety they knew sadness they knew impatience they knew cruelty they knew evil and they lost their self-control god didn't just come to this earth to die to forgive us of our sins he came to this earth so that our intelligence could once again be restored to what it once was he came to this earth so that our emotions could become effective and put in the right perspective, our wills would no longer be degraded and defiant, but our wills would be submissive to his. But the interesting thing is is that this plan, while necessary, was not put into effect the moment Adam and Eve sinned. God was not caught unawares by the sin dilemma. It was a plan that had been devised from the foundation of the earth, scripture tells us. It was a plan that God already knew he would have to do. Again, Ellen White tells us in Desire of Ages that the plan for our redemption was not an afterthought, a plan formulated after the similitude, I'm sorry, a plan formulated after the fall of Adam. It was a revelation of the mystery which hath been kept in silence through times eternal. It was an unfolding of the principles that from eternal ages had been the foundation of God's throne. From the beginning God and Christ knew of the apostasy of Satan and of the fall of man through the deceptive powers of the apostate God did not ordain that sin should exist but he foresaw its existence and made provision to meet the terrible emergency so great was his love for the world that he covenanted to give his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life I love the way Max Lucado puts it God loves us so much that he would rather die than live without us. Or you can make that personal and put your name in there. God loved you so much that he sent his son because he would rather die than live without you. And so the necessity was because of man's sin and man's fall and the need for God to restore us to himself, which brings us to the results of the incarnation. The results of the incarnation. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shares in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The results are that God turns back the clock on sin. The results are that God restores us into fellowship with himself. The results are that God not only forgives our sin, but he gives us the power to transform our lives and to change us, that we might reflect his character of love that the world so desperately needs to see. The results... Are that we once again are adopted into his family and we become sons and daughters of the Most High God? In the end, it is not just the salvation of mankind, it is the salvation of the universe. In the end, it is not just the fact that we are changed and transformed so that God can take us to heaven to be with him until he restores this earth. In the end, it is that God himself is vindicated in the eyes of angels on fallen worlds, in the eyes of a universe. In the end, the results of the incarnation is that no longer can, people, can the devil and others say God is unfair, God is unjust, God does not love you, because the Incarnation of Jesus says God, God, not Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave. And he gave Jesus to come to this earth to experience the death we deserved that we might experience the righteousness we don't deserve. Only the revelation of God's character in and through the Son can prove the Father to be worthy of the allegiance of his creatures. That's from The Man Who Is God, page 33, by Edward Happenstall. Let me say that again. Only the revelation of God's character in and through the Son can prove the Father to be worthy of the allegiance of his creatures. In the Incarnation, God's incredible plan became a reality. Through the incarnation Jesus came to deliver mankind from the results and ruin of sin and to reconcile, redeem and restore us to God. That sentence is what this sermon is all about. Let me state it again. God's incredible plan became a reality through the incarnation Jesus came to deliver mankind and the universe from the results and ruin of sin and to reconcile redeem and restore us to God and Jesus was successful perhaps perhaps another passage of scripture gives us an enlightenment into how we should respond to this incarnation, which is so far beyond what we can figure out. It is John 1, verses 9 to 13. Right in the midst of, of, of the story of, that John gives of in the beginning was the word, and before he gets to the word was made flesh, he says the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, that's Jesus. The true light who gives truth, that's Jesus. Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name or his character, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of flesh and blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. Did you catch that? To all who receive him, who believe in his character of love and mercy and grace and justice and holiness and righteousness. He gives the right to become children of God. Why? Because Jesus left heaven, came to this earth, took on human flesh so that he could become the Savior of the world. You will see many, many Christmas programs on TV. You will hear many, many famous people singing Christmas carols and Christmas songs. And I don't care how wonderful their voice is. If they don't know Jesus, they shouldn't be able to sing the songs like you can sing them. I don't care how fabulous the tone. I don't care how high they they can go, how low they can go. I don't care how many records they can sell. If they don't know Jesus, they can't sing the songs. They may sing them, but they don't sing them. You get my message? I don't care how awful your voice may be. I don't care if you can't carry a tune in a bushel basket. I don't care if you're more off-key than on. If you know Jesus, you can sing the songs of Christmas because Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. He came to die for you. There is a Christmas carol that is not well known. We've sung it before in this church, and every time we sing it, people kind of shake their heads at me and say, Pastor Gary, why do we sing that? It's hymn number 140 in your hymnals. The reason it's my favorite Christmas song is because it really does tell the story of Christmas. Hymn number 140 in your hymnals. I'm going to ask Taylor to play the song. I'm going to read the first two stanzas, and Taylor, I didn't give this part to you before. I'm going to read the first two stanzas, and then you're going to sing with me the last two stanzas, and notice the change in the chorus for the last verse. It goes from a a prayer to come to my heart, Lord Jesus, to rejoicing when he comes for us. Go ahead, Taylor, begin to play. Thou didst leave thy throne in thy kingly crown, when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. Heaven's arches rang when the angels sang, proclaiming thy royal degree. But of lowly birth didst thou come to earth in greatest humility oh come to my heart lord jesus there is room in my heart for thee will you stand with me as we stand?